Does your son have a hard time expressing his emotions? Does he clam up? Is he not willing to share how he's feeling? Well, today's guest is an expert in that area, and he is going to share with you some great pointers on how to help your son and your daughter open up to you. We all know that parenting is hard work and life can get busy. We've done the research to help you. So let's dig deep with Leanne Mancini and work together to help you raise strong Christian kids. Welcome back, friends. David Thomas. He is the Director of Counseling for Boys and Men at Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville, Tennessee, my favorite town, and the author of several books, including his latest, Raising Emotionally Strong Boys, Tools Your Sons Can Build On for Life. There's also a companion workbook, which is wonderful, entitled Strong and Smart, A Boy's Guide to Building Healthy Emotions, written for boys ages 6 through 12. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to share this time with you. Yes, and, and we are just so happy to have you. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and what motivated you to become a licensed master level social worker? I'd love to. I am first and foremost a proud son, husband, and father of three amazing kids. And I am, as you kindly shared, a therapist who's been practicing at this amazing place in Nashville called Daystar for the past 25 years and really grateful for the opportunity I've been given to sit front row with families over these decades and just walk with them in their unique circumstances. And, you know, when I think back in response to your question of what led me to this work, I actually can think all the way back to being in elementary school, middle school and high school of remembering being in conversation with friends who would say to me, Somewhat often, you know, you're really easy to talk with. And then when oh. I became a college student, I worked all four summers at a camp for elementary age kids. And my colleagues would come and get me when they had homesick kids who they just could not figure out how to help them fall asleep at night because they were crying so hard and thinking so much about missing home. And so they were like, hey, can you come over and give me some help with this? And there was just always something pretty natural for me about being with kids in harder places. It just, it didn't scare me. It didn't overwhelm me the way I think it does a lot of folks, probably a lot of males in particular. It just felt more natural. And so even when I think back to those college years, I was just more drawn to the kids who maybe had been, you know, just found out before they left for camp that their parents were going to be separating or divorcing and they were just caring a lot. And there was just something really instinctive for me about sitting with them and talking with them and walking with them. And so I'm just thankful that years later I could do my training and, and figure out how to do this work professionally. And I work with an amazing group of people. And we do the work we do a little different here at Daystar in that we're in a house rather than an office complex. And that was a very intentional decision for us because anyone listening who's ever taken kids you love to counseling or gone yourself, you know, it can be an overwhelming experience at first. And we try to do as much as we can to make it disarming. We also have six therapy dogs on staff who are hands down the kids' favorite therapist in this building. And I'm so, sure. <laughs> yes, they are. And we work hard to, to, again, try to make kids feel really at home in this space as they're walking through those hard things. So really grateful for the work I do. Really thankful that out of that work, I've been able to write some books and travel around the country and just teach and talk with parents and educators about what it looks like to care for the kids we love. You know, that's wonderful. And 
I chuckled there when you said easy to talk to because I heard that a lot also. When Did I was well, well, when I was growing up, my friends, you know, would say, You're so easy to talk to and you're and you're level headed. And that would make me feel good because I always wanted to serve the Lord. And I yes. think that's a big part of wanting, you know, to help people that you become easy to talk to because they yes. they can feel it in the in your answers and your actions and how you talk to them and reply to them. And I'm I'm sure the kids love coming there in a home environment with the dogs. I think that is just a great idea. Well, it's amazing how the dogs win kids over. A Labrador puppy who just kind of wants to climb up in your lap and be close to you. It's just hard to stay really resistant. So they do a lot of the great heavy lifting in this space. I love that. Well, you talk about how it's really hard for boys to open up and express their feelings and their emotions. And I have a son and a daughter. And when they were children, I noticed that my son wasn't able to easily express his emotions when he was upset. He would clam up. My daughter, on the other hand, I couldn't get her to stop. She was telling me everything and, and sharing everything. And I was happy. But I, you know, the, there is a difference. And I love your acronym for FINE. What does it stand for? And what is the reason and the purpose behind FINE? F-I-N-E. Mm. Yes. We talk a lot in our practice about how FINE is an acronym for feelings in need of expression. And as you even said just then, it's certainly been my experience, I think, for a lot of individuals in this world, and I would argue maybe males in particular, it's just easy to give that answer when asked, how are you doing? And it takes more, takes more emotional muscles, as I call them, to really move beyond fine into digging in and having a sense of recognition and awareness around what it is that I'm feeling and instincts around what to do with those feelings. So I talk a lot about taking fine off the table and replacing that with something more useful, something more constructive, because even though that work is harder for boys, and it's interesting because it goes all the way back to the very beginning when we even think on those early pediatric visits with kids at 12, 18, 24 months, what pediatricians would tell us is that when they ask the question to parents, how many words is he or she saying that girls will be saying often two to three times the number of words that boys are saying. So if her general vocabulary is larger, it makes sense that her emotional vocabulary would be more expansive. So we're going to have to labor longer, work harder to help boys develop an expansive emotional vocabulary to develop those emotional muscles. And that's really what the book is about. Feelings in need of expression. So we're yeah, going to have to get that. below that response of fine to figuring out what is it that I'm feeling? And I would and even how I can on, express it. Absolutely. And how I can express it. And, you know, the most common emotion that I hear reported in my office has been the case for 25 years with boys is anger. Oh, yes. And, you know, uh, biologically, somewhere around nine to 10, boys begin to channel all primary emotions, sadness, fear, disappointment, confusion into anger. It's an instinctive process. And then culturally, I think we support that. We say it's okay to be angry. It's not okay for males to be sad or afraid. Right. And so, we're going to have to work hard to push against this biological process where he can get access to what he's really feeling. And as we're discussing, express that, get below the anger to what's really there. Because anger is, we talk a lot about in our practice, anger is a secondary emotion or a right. derivative emotion. There's always something underneath. Yeah, it's like that iceberg. Anger is the tip of the iceberg, but what is below is what's causing there it. There it is. You mentioned the space quite often in your book and a pattern called anchoring. You know, the space is really about taking the emotion to something constructive. 
And anchoring is what I think is most instinctive for every one of us and will stay instinctive unless we learn to take the emotion to something constructive. And it's it's based on that age-old saying I remember hearing my grandmother say when I was about 10 years old that misery loves company. You know, it's this idea that if I feel yucky on the inside, I'd really like to tie an anchor around your waist and drag you to the bottom of the lake with me. I want <laughs> you to feel yucky with me. And what is happening when we allow kids just to stay stuck in that process is they are using us as their resources rather than developing resourcefulness themselves. And so they're using us to work through the emotions rather than developing healthy coping skills to work that through on their own. And in the beginning, and I talk about this all throughout the book, we are going to begin the journey always with what we call co-regulation, being with our kids as they're developing these skills. But what we want to be moving toward always is self-regulation, that when they're out in the world and living on their own, they have all these great skills in place that they've practiced and they don't need us. And so I challenge parents to consider it a little like the way we teach swimming. You know, in the beginning, we're going to be in the pool with kids. We're going to be helping them blow bubbles and kick and in the water with our hands outstretched as they're swimming toward us. But the long goal is that kids would swim in the water on their own. You know, that we're not going to be able to be in the ocean with them when they're 28 years old. And so we want kids to have those skills firmly in place, well-practiced so they can execute them on their own. But according to the stats, we're just not getting there. Yeah. Every year, the World Health Organization, WHO, releases new stats that allow us to look at how we're doing compared to other countries around the globe. And, you know, sadly, we are leading some of the scariest statistics in our country and men in particular. Men lead the stats for infidelity, Internet pornography, substance abuse, suicide, some of the scariest things. And the common denominator with all four of those being that it is a male's attempt at trying to numb out or shut down whatever I'm feeling. I'm trying to medicate in some way. Well, you have great content in this book to help parents. But you talk about that space again. That's Could you just real briefly I'd tell us about the space? I have a blueprint for that in the book. And then in the workbook that you kindly mentioned, I walk boys through with their parents how to develop that in the home. And where we choose to put the space is not magical. What we choose to put in the space is not magical. It's the learning to exit the exchange of anchoring and moving toward the space that is the magic. But I will commonly recommend that parents think about identifying a space where your family really operates the most. So it might be a rec room or it might be a corner of a kitchen or a mud room or a garage that's right off the main living space. And we want to pack that space full of some sensory and tactile and physical experiences. I talk a lot about how boys have a lot of physicality to their emotions. So it's why research would tell us that toddler age boys are more prone to biting, hitting, kicking, screaming in a classroom. Why adolescent boys are a little more prone to punching holes in drywall. It's that need to release some physicality, some intensity, some energy. And so if we early on and all along the way are training boys toward having some healthy physical outlets, putting things like a mini trampoline or a bucket of stress balls or a punching bag or a kickstand, something in this space that allows him to go to this spot in the house and channel that physicality. It's a gift. That's a practical, concrete way of teaching that journey from co-regulation to self-regulation. And in the beginning, I encourage parents, go with boys to this space and go to this space even when boys aren't going on their own. You know, if a boy resisted and he kind of wants to default back to anchoring, which many boys do, 
I encourage parents to go anyway because there's a win in two ways. If you go to the space yourself, you are interrupting what I call emotional tug of war. And boys who are low in resourcefulness will always default to emotional tug of war. They do that through negotiating and arguing and baiting their parents back in in all kinds of different ways to keep from developing these emotional muscles. So when we go to the space, even if they won't, we're interrupting emotional tug of war. We're also modeling. And I talk throughout the book about how kids learn more from observation than information. And so when they get to sit front row and see the adults they trust the most in this world doing the work of regulation, it's a win still. You have a sense of what to do, how to take that to something constructive. And so when we have a concrete identified space for kids, particularly kids pre-12, who are in concrete thinking in terms of their cognitive development, it's just super helpful to go to an actual space. And then eventually they may use their room, they may use outdoors on a trampoline or a bike as their space, but it's that training from co-regulation to self-regulation that we've been doing all along the way. Yes, I remember hearing about this situation just before camp where they had the girls on one side and the boys on the other side. And it's exactly as you explained it. The girls were kind of quiet and delicate and talking to each other and pointing towards the boys. And the boys weren't even paying attention, but they were roughhousing and jumping on each other and running around and hitting each other. So, you know, it's exactly what you're saying. I think boys have more energy that they need to let out, especially when they're stressed. But at the end of the chapter, you talk about intentional practices. I end every chapter of this book with five intentional practices, because as a parent myself, Having read a lot of books over the course of my training and my journey of parenting, you know, I know what it feels like to read a book and think, yes, I agree with that. I'm totally on board. Now, how do I put that into practice? And it felt so important to me that parents could read each chapter, not just the book as a whole, but each chapter and feel like I know five things, at least five things I could be doing at the end of this chapter to put those practices into place. And so that was of great importance to me. And so even that chapter, as I talk around those ideas of things that boys need from the men and women in their life, I want to talk about specific ways that we can walk them toward those needs and yeah, give them access a, to those needs. So important. Again, I just love, you have so many more nuggets to talk about, but I thank you for being on the show, David Thomas. Please keep writing and keep sharing your wisdom and doing the work that God has blessed you with. I can't thank you enough for giving me this opportunity. And right back at you, I am really grateful. Thank you, David. God bless you. And this is how we all work together to raise strong Christian kids. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.